Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. And uh, Lord God, I just um, I just ask that you will work through me. And I thank you so much for the grace that you've given me, the abilities that you've given me. And, and I do not in any way claim ownership to them by my own merits or anything like that. And give me the grace to understand that the lost world that we engage with is not there, um, or rather we're not where we are because we're so smart or we had it all together and that they just need to get their act together. But we need to understand that we were just as them and apart from God and apart from your son, we are still like them. And I just ask that you will work through us to, to be salt and light to the world, that we would truly make a great impact among everyone that we meet, even among ourselves in this congregation, uh, but to the whole world. And we pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Very good. Okay. So last week, we spent most of our time talking about understanding our opponent or understanding our enemy. And there we went through essentially what we'd been highlighting through all the classes, which was this idea that man is, first of all, without excuse to the existence of God, and yet he suppresses the truth. So as I said last week, what does that mean? Well, that means in his reasoning, in his thinking, we should expect to find what John Frame called a revelational or revelatory insight, that is insight into the world, that is drawn correctly from God's natural revelation. Because he's aware of God's natural revelation, we would we would argue that his, his sense faculties are created by God and they're designed for this world. So therefore, his ability to see things is accurate, just like our ability to see things and hear things is accurate. But his understanding or his interpretation of the natural world is flawed because of his rejection of special revelation, because of his rejection of God's word. So because of that, we should expect him to have sort of correct and true understanding of the world, but also drastically depraved and drastically fallen. So this would uh, lead us to the sort of realization that his arguments, his worldview, at some level should have inconsistencies. It's going to have logical contradictions, if we want to term it that way. It should have pitfalls. It should have shortcomings. These sort of ideas that his worldview is not going to actually match up with how he actually lives. And that's perhaps the most important thing to remember in any apologetic encounter, um, particularly when we get into sort of the academic discussions of apologetics. When someone uh, just right out of the bat comes and asks us about uh, or raises the problem of evil or raises a question about the inspiration of Scripture or raises a question about the deity of Christ or the resurrection of Christ being impossible because it's a miracle. And in their worldview, miracles are, are impossibilities. These sort of ideas. Those sort of encounters, what we need to understand and remember in that point is our opponent's condition. That he is starting from a drastically different starting point. That he has a different worldview at the foundation that is driving all of his beliefs therefrom. So that's what we talked about last week. And I actually did a little bit more 
sort of investigation on it um, this week. And I want to just go over that again. And it was interesting. I was thinking about starting my class with like, it was probably eight verses at least throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And I was thinking about just using this to sort of illustrate this idea of, of, of natural man state or fallen man state and then um, restored man. And um, all the verses were having to do with how God actually creates life in man. And the interesting thing is that if you look at Adam and you look at the Old Testament, there's one way that God actually creates life in people, and that's through his breath. He actually breathes into Adam's nostrils. He, the, um, uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel, uh, talks about God is actually going to breathe into the people of Israel and give them new life and, and prosperity and things like that. And then obviously in the New Testament, Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is essentially the same idea. The word breath, uh, uh, what's it? Pneumos, I think in, in Greek. I my Greek's rusty. Um, but the word for wind is the same word for spirit, the same word for breath, this idea. Well, the idea is that God alone breathes into, he inspires his church, and that enables them and empowers them to have new life. So the point is, apart from God's word, apart from his actually speaking, I think it's uh, Timothy that actually, or maybe Titus that actually says that the word of God is God-breathed. So it's encapsulating that whole idea that apart from the Word of God, apart from the Holy Spirit, inspiring us, breathing into us new life, we're incapable of finding Him. We're incapable of following Him and serving Him and also understanding Him. That sort of idea. So that just robusts our understanding of our opponent's condition. We can't afford to assume that He understands everything the same way that we do, which is why we have the usage of questions to flush that out. Through asking questions, as I said last week, and I'll repeat it today uh, again and again, by asking questions, you're going to make yourself very attractive to that person, uh, which is funny because I have one scripture here where they aren't attracted by that. But... Um, <laughs> For the most part, that person is going to be somewhat amazed that you actually have interest in their worldview, in their beliefs. And by doing that, what the goal is, is to flush out just how far apart we are in our starting points, in our understandings. To show you're, you are assuming that no God exists, but you're living as though God does exist. I'm over here trying to live both, both ways. I'm trying to assume that he does and live as though he does. That sort of idea. So, last week we sort of concluded with questioning being the best strategy. So we want to use questions to go on the offensive or go on the offense of engaging or critiquing unbelief. So remember we, we settled that idea of there are really only two, according to Scripture, there are really only two worldviews. There's the Christian worldview that presupposes God, and then there's the atheistic worldview. There's the non-Christian worldview, which rejects Him altogether, essentially. 
So how do we go on the offensive and critiquing that unbelief? How do we go on the offensive and critique atheism? Well, the best way is not to, uh, as my dad is fond of saying, of casting our pearls before the swine. Right? We don't want to just go out there and give all of our best arguments right away, and we don't understand what they actually believe yet. We don't understand the sort of nuances of their belief and why they have a problem where they were they raised in a family where their father was just an alcoholic and abusive and these sort of things? Is that why they have a main objection to God? Well, if we just start right into our sort of scripted defense of Scripture, we're not actually understanding our enemy. We're not understanding our opponent. So that's why leading off with questions is key. In battle, in, in, in war, intelligence. You need intelligence. No one just, they didn't just invade... Germany, or um, Normandy, they didn't just do D-Day on, oh, well, we're just going to hope nobody's there, or we're going to hope that you know, tide, the tide is right, and these sort of things. They relied on intelligence. They planned, they had strategy, this sort of idea. And I can't, I'm telling you, this, as I said last week, it's, if you will do this, if you will use this properly, it's amazing. It's almost like you have magical powers. It really, really is. I'm telling you, I've, there's so many times that... Um, I don't do it too often anymore because, I don't know, I'm just, I, I got burnt out on it a little bit. But going on the internet and doing the sort of YouTube comment arguments and Facebook comment arguments and stuff, it's fun, but so is, you know, like boxing and things like that. Um, but if you will use this strategy, what you will find is you can, if you use it improperly and you're a jerk about it, you can tie people into knots really quick. So our goal today is to learn how to do this but also learn how to do it graciously with respect. And this is not a tool that we use simply to get, as the, as the creator of this method says, we don't want to just put a notch in our belt that I just destroyed that person's arguments. Right? Now we do want to destroy false doctrines, false opinions raised up against Christ. But there's a way to do that that is not as abrasive as just coming out and saying, nope, you're wrong. Let me tell you how you're wrong which is essentially how our world does it today. That's the whole political landscape. And I've said this over and over again. Political debate these days is just, no, you're not. You're, you're wrong. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the argument clinic from the uh, Monty Python when he goes, contradiction isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> That's the idea is that this is how the world is beginning to argue these days where it's just like, there's no listening to the other side. There's no questions sent back and forth of what do you actually mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, let me ask you just one more little interesting. I, I heard something in your argument that's difficult for me to understand. Can you clarify this? Asking those sort of questions is all but disappeared in the, at least public debate, which, anyways, we'll move on. <laughs> so... This is, I think this is the best strategy, which is why we're, uh, we're covering it, because I'm the teacher and I get to make the decisions. So yes, so there. And in case, yeah, no you don't. Hey, this isn't public school, okay? The students do not have more rights than the teachers. Okay. Uh, to, to prove this point even more, I want to use um, uh, scripture that I was going to get to last week, but we just ran out of time. And Christ actually uses this method of 
uh, we've talked about the burden of proof, and today we're going to talk about the burden of proof and reversing the burden of proof, that is getting it off of yourself and on to the other person. And Christ actually does this. Uh, we have it in Matthew 22:34 through 46. Um, you can turn there if you'd like, but it's not necessary. I'll read it. But Matthew 22, 30 through 34 through 46. And I'm going to read this and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit because you need to understand a little bit of the context and Old Testament context for it to really uh, have strength. So this is him before the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, they said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said to them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Truly. So we need to understand for a moment what's going on there. Essentially, Jesus, in that portion, asks them, Who is, according to you, according to Jewish thought, who is the Messiah? Who is Christ? Well, they would have understood the Christ to be in the line of David, to be the son of David. And this is actually, if you, if you were to take a, a New Testament history class at a, at a university, Christian university, you would learn things about all the other pseudo-messiahs during that time period who claimed to be of a certain tribe, claimed to be of the line of David, and were looking to be that political revolutionary to upend Roman rule and to create a Jewish empire. There were several of them throughout Jesus' uh, life uh, and even afterwards. So that's important to understand because the Jews at that time, that's what they were expecting, which is why Christ is sort of that... Um, uh, yeah, he's that disappointment, but I like to call it, he's sort of that divine contradiction to their worldview. Okay? Um, he's, there, he's not at all what they were expecting or even hoping. And we hear this from Peter and, and the disciples. They themselves are like, well, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to be the treasurer? Who's going to be the commander of the army? And these sort of ideas, right? Um, Oftentimes, do we as Christians think the same thing? Mm -hmm. yep. you know, well, just pray this little prayer and throw your stick into the campfire and everything's going to be okay. And all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute. We suffer? We, you know, we go through intense suffering mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, precisely. So, for their understanding, for the Pharisees' understanding, the Christ was going to be from the line of David. And indeed, Christ is of the line of David because Joseph was of the line of David. But this idea that 
where he trapped them was he asked them, whose son will he be? Well, he's going to be the son of David. That means he's a man. That means he's merely a man. And this is where the Pharisees believed that this would be a man who, like David, was just born, but had the Spirit of God on him. Christ is trying to point them to the fact that no... In, in your teachings, you're misunderstanding it. It actually has to be God himself, which he then asks them the question, if, um, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son, or how is he in his line? The idea is then, if the Messiah is going to be in the line of David, how does the Messiah predate David? The only way he can predate David is if he's eternal, if he is in fact God himself. So this is an amazing, when we understand this, and I actually pulled three or four different commentaries, and for some reason they all stopped at verse 40, and they didn't have any commentary on what Jesus replies, which I thought was strange. I'm sure there's a reason for that. I'm sure there's some fancy redactical Greek reason of, <laughs> of let's move on past that or something. I don't know, but I thought that was interesting that, for me, the most important part of what's going on here where Christ sort of turns the tables on them and asks them a very profound question is wasn't covered by, like, four different scholars. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they're like, maybe they're like, oh, we, we don't know. Right. But, I mean, I, obviously, <laughs> at that, for those sort of things, a lot of times commentaries, uh, um, when they cover a whole book mm. in one book, they have to, even then, they have to go really quick. So maybe I just pulled the wrong ones. There were only like 25 to choose from. So. <laughs> You're not used to interacting with people. Right, right. Think, Truly. I think a lot of the problem stems from a, like a, it's something being a, in the miracle realm is very hard to comment on. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, Jesus raised Lazarus. Well, how? How did he do that? Well, how? You know, he just spoke the word and it happened. And that's so basically all human flesh, we just... Which is essentially what, which is what they did when Jesus asked them this question, because what it did was was it it successfully trapped them. They understood the point. The reason that they couldn't respond to him is because they understood where he was driving towards. He made the point well, and they understood it. That's why they didn't answer him. That's why they couldn't answer him. And that's essentially. We don't want to do it so that no one ever asks us any more questions again. But this is what I'm talking about as far as leading people to understanding standing it themselves. And he did this by asking questions. My grandfather, uh, I don't think he coined this phrase, but it's a phrase that I've grown up with. He used to say, a man convinced against his will is of the same mind still. A man convinced against his will is of the same mind still. The idea there is that for us to convince people to be effective apologists, to be effective witnesses, to actually go about convincing people, if if we're unable to convince them through sheer argument, well, there must be some way we can convince them. Otherwise we wouldn't have these mandates to go out and do this. So Christ is clearly working through us some way. But what do we find? If you think about yourselves, your opinions have probably changed from when you were a teenager about certain things. I mean, I hope they have, right? Hopefully we grow up and we mature. 
But our opinions on political things, on religious things, on finances and these sort of ideas, a lot of times the, the way those change, we, we think that that happened within ourselves, that we sort of gradually changed over time. Very rarely did we hear someone who was arguing against us or trying to contradict us and we were just like, wow, that was such a great argument, I just have to believe it. That very rarely happens. I think that person, that, that, that's the instance where their argument is shown to be false and they accept it. Um, God has been working heavily on that person. But for the most part, we, this needs to happen and this happens gradually and this happens through sort of a, um, I don't know if you've seen, what's the movie, Inception, where they plant the idea in the person's mind so that he imagines that he himself came to that conclusion. That's kind of what we're trying to do here. By asking questions, we can lead people to the conclusion of their worldview without just bombarding them with our own. We need to address theirs before then we can come in and offer a more excellent replacement. Before we can offer a replacement of the truth. That sort of idea. Don't just believe me. Believe on miracles mm-hmm. that I perform. So again, showing that God, God is in the realm of a miracle, not humans, right? So, and, and if you don't believe in His words, believe on the miracles that He performed. So it's like use your own eyesight and believe on this. Don't simply. It's, it's hard. So again, like in Matthew, Matthew takes you through the lineage and of the human man lineage of Christ and. He, long right down to Christ and to try and convince those who want to prove right. from his standpoint, right? So that, mm-hmm. that comes from a human point of view too. Yep, yep. Yeah, so um, the point is that we, we do have something we can do. Because man, even though mankind is stuck in their uh, fallenness, in their depravity, in their rejection of God, we are still told to go out and engage with, and engage with him. So this is the idea is that we should argue in a way that they ought to be convinced. So in Matthew, they should, we're going to present a case as though this would convince them. That sort of idea. They should be able to see it clearly, even though we would say we should assume that they won't. So this is that idea of they should be convinced, but we expect them not to be. That sort of conclusion. So going on, we're going to sort of use this scripture and then go into some of the specifics, and we're going to end the class with this, some of just some quick specifics on the burden of proof, and then reversing the burden of proof, and then we're going to look at just really quickly a few things to look out for when you're actually engaging with people. So the burden of proof is obviously, as we've said before, the person who makes the claim, or is at least assuming something, bears the burden of proving it or defending it. So we'll just give some examples Um, One that I've heard recently is, I don't believe, this is a claim, someone will say, I don't believe in in the big guy in the sky. Well, I could just start off into my articulation of the Trinity. But I think the wiser course of action is to then just simply ask a question, what do you mean by the big guy in the sky? Make them defend their definition of God first, and you will see just how far apart we are. 
Because if we assume that what they mean by the big guy in the sky is the triune God of Scripture, <laughs> it's a drastic mistake. It's a huge mistake. We need to understand by asking questions, okay, just how far apart are we? Because then we can say to them, oh, I don't believe in that either. I don't believe in the big guy in the sky. I don't believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Something like that. But we do this by asking questions. And this is a very difficult thing to sort of click your mind into doing it. I find myself all the time hearing a claim and I immediately start attacking it with my own beliefs. And I'm in the middle of teaching a class on not doing that. <laughs> so this is, this is something that if you will practice it, if you will think about it and sort of really meditate on, okay, how, how do I change my mindset from just immediately wanting to refute it with my own beliefs, but then engage in the questioning method? You will find your, your conversations are just amazingly fruitful. I, I've experienced that myself, and, and I can guarantee you that will be the case if you will employ this method. So the burden of proof is... The person who's making the claim bears the burden. Now, every once, and we gave an example. Every once in a while, someone will make a claim in question form. We, we looked at that last week. <clears throat> so someone might ask, how can God exist if there is evil in the world? Well, that's a question. Well, according to the burden of proof, they don't bear any burden because they haven't actually made a claim. They've only asked a question. Well, for, if this is the beginning of our conversation... We want to reverse the burden of proof. They've asked a question and tried to place the burden of proof on us to answer their question. How can a God exist? How can a good God exist if there's evil in the world? Well, if we reverse the burden of proof, then we are back into asking questions. So how do we reverse the burden of proof? We ask a clarification question. So someone were to say, how can God exist if there is evil in the world? We don't just immediately go into our defense of what we talked about in class six. We should ask them, which is essentially doing the very same thing, what do you mean by evil? Which is exactly what we did in class six. In class six, we didn't just take evil for granted. We unpacked it. We said, what does the world mean by evil? Oh, it turns out what they mean by evil is what they don't like. Well, if that's your definition of evil, now we have something to work with. Now we understand our enemy we understand our opponent better, and we're better equipped to dialogue with him. So that's how we reverse the burden of proof. If someone asks us a question, we ask a follow-up question. Now, eventually, the person might figure out what you're doing, and, and then that's sort of when the gig is up, and, and you will, I would say, go ahead and, and make the claims. Go ahead and defend what you actually believe. But as long as you can, at least, remain with asking questions. You will find that you can prove someone to be wrong by asking questions only about their worldview. You never have to say anything about what you believe. Now I would say once you get him to the point of going, oh wow, okay, there are some serious problems in my worldview, that's when you can then come in, well, let me tell you what I believe about these things. Let me tell you about what I believe about the nature of evil. Let me tell you what I believe about how we define God as being good. Those sort of ideas. So that's the burden of proof and reversing the burden of proof. Essentially, it's just asking questions. Don't get ahead of yourself. And, and I'm telling you, it's really, really difficult. To Everybody wants to jump in and start talking about themselves. 
and about what they believe. I do it probably more than anybody. <laughs> it's just the nature of, you know, when you get a college education and you think you know everything and then, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you really don't. Why don't you just ask questions and you'll stop making a fool of yourself? That sort of idea. If we will do this, a change will happen in your encounters. And it'll go from, why I just can't seem to make a difference with anybody I talk to, or this person just keeps bringing the same objections to me. It's like, well, it's probably because you don't understand their objections. We're not actually taking the time to understand these people. And that's something that if we do that, we're showing value, we're showing value in that person, and we're saying to that person, I think your beliefs have value enough that I want to understand them. They are valuable enough that they warrant my paying attention to them, which is what, they, which was what we want them to do to our beliefs. So it's that sort of treating in kind sort of idea. Now, those are, that's the, the basis of the presuppositional method, that we ask questions in order to lead people to the conclusion of their argument. And this is something that anybody can do. Anybody can ask, what do you mean by that? Why? These sort of questions are as simple as you can be. Why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? What do you mean by this term? What do you mean by that term? These sort of ideas, and the person probably will be caught off guard that you're even interested in, in, in asking them about that. And the other important thing is that we want to make sure we do this graciously and genuinely. The, the worst thing you can do is ask these questions with sort of a snarky, like, well, what do you mean by that kind of attitude? Because then they immediately realize your tactic, that you're going to try to prove them wrong by just asking questions. So hopefully we are genuine. Hopefully we are actually interested in understanding our enemy. Otherwise it becomes purely just a tactic to defeat them. Because we don't want to just ruin their worldview. We don't want to just destroy their worldview. We want to destroy it, but still leave enough room. It's sort of like we want to conquer their land, but we don't want to do it so that their future generations hate us because we just abused everyone that we conquered. We want to be gracious conquerors, I guess, you could, if we want to use that analogy. We want to be the type of uh, nation that comes in and conquers a new land and yet brings them into a better life than they had before. Right. Yep. And people can tell when you don't care about them, or you're just trying to, you know, put objections. Win. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to get away from just trying to win the argument to actually trying to better this person, to to bring about a change in them, so they understand the truth. Essentially, we want to see them saved. We want to see them with relationship with God. That's the goal. The goal is not to just be like, ha nobody can touch me anymore. I'm invincible when it comes to arguing because I know how to ask good questions. But you can do this with this. this is, that's what I'm saying. That's why they, call, they killed Socrates. This is essentially the Socratic method. You could Google that. The Socratic method is why they killed him. Because he used it arrogantly. And they were like, okay, we've got to get rid of this guy. We, you know. Okay, so what to watch out for. These are some pitfalls. We'll just end with this really quickly. 
one of the things you'll, uh, you'll find when you dialogue with people is that they will use what are called, and this is, I see people taking notes, you can write this down. They use ad hominem arguments. Let's see, hominem, I think that's how it's spelled. Ad hominem, which basically means against the person. What an ad hominem argument is, is it is a personal attack or it's a character attack when that's not the issue in question. So, if we might want to use something, Donald Trump's foreign policies are bad because he's a jerk. That's an ad hominem because the, the question in, or the, the, the issue in question are his policies, not his character. If we want to talk about his character, that's fine. But answering an objection to a question with a personal attack or all Christians are bigots or something like that or all Christians think everybody else is wrong, those sort of personal attacks, the sort of personal or character attacks are ad hominem arguments. And the interesting thing is, and the reason that I want you to know this term is so that you can look it up on your own, is a logical fallacy. This necessarily means that their attack is false. It has nothing to do with the actual argument. So if we, ha if we hear an ad hominem argument, if we're talking about Christ's resurrection or we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture and the, the, the reliability and textual purity of Scripture, and then the person just throws something in about Christians all being racist. I don't know, any, any term you want. That's an ad hominem argument. So what we need to be able to realize, and we need to be able to find it and go, wait a minute, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. And we can then ask them questions. What does that have to do with the discussion on the reliability of, of the uh, text of Scripture? Those sort of things. We don't want to just come out and say, oh, you committed ad hominem, you're wrong. Okay? <laughs> Same process. We ask questions and say, wait a minute, what does that have to do with our discussion on this issue? But that's something you'll find, and I think we can all relate to that. We've heard that sort of idea, where it starts rabbit trailing into just personal assaults and, oh, well, he's, and she's, uh, whatever. Here in debate class, bad form. Yeah, bad, bad form. form. So that's ad hominem. That's what that means. Against the person, essentially. A personal attack. Going along... Oh, go ahead. Oh, is that similar to... Um, I think it's kind of related to... So they say, well, your beliefs lead you to believe, you know, believe and act like this, and that's, we think that that behavior is bad, therefore, what you believe in is, is also a... Yeah, I think there, there is... You could make a correlation between you know, uh, your the, uh, theological belief and then eventually get to how you're behaving. But that's not what they've done when they've done an ad hominem. They just sort of, it's sort of their last dish effort. Right. They, they just think, toss it in. I think right. sometimes they might think that's what they've done. Right, right. So, and that's why we ask them, what does that have to do with the argument? Right, right. Because then they go, well, it, in my opinion, it follows directly from this. And then you can clarify, well, no, we don't, you know, we could say something like, we don't judge religions based on their heretics. I love saying that one. We don't, we don't judge religions based on their heretics. Right. So, anyways. Uh, we don't judge unbelievers based on their heretics either. Right. <laughs> but you don't put it to, and that's part of that, and that's part of that, because you're like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, judge us with a jerk, or he's an idiot, he's a heretic. Well, yeah, so I've judged LDS on the heretic, Joseph Smith. Yeah, Joseph Smith is a liar. 
well, okay, but that doesn't have anything to do with, he might be a liar, but he might have told the truth for that one instance. We don't know, right? So this is the idea that we can't just resort to name-calling ad hominem arguments. We don't want to just attack the character of the person. We want to actually address what they actually believe and how they came to that conclusion, that idea. So com connected with ad hominem, and these are not my terminologies. I have to give my work cited for in case anybody ever listens to this, and I don't want to get sued. This is uh, the work of uh, an apologist named Greg Kolkol, and this is the, uh, what he coined as the Colombo tactic, which I mentioned last week. So these are his terms, not ad hominem. This is a Latin term, but this is his term. He talks about addressing the steamroller. So the steamroller is essentially the person who either just uses ad hominem arguments or, and I think we've experienced this, they just start shotgunning a million claims at you, right? Well, uh, this and Jesus couldn't have raised because miracles are impossible and scripture's been changed over time and my father was a, you know alcoholic and da, 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 and they're just, they're just throwing claim after claim after claim after claim at you. They're trying to overwhelm you. They're trying to steamroll you, essentially. Trying to just get you to go away. So what we need to do is, if we're aware that that's going to happen, we can stop the person and say, wait a minute, you said something very interesting to me. I want to know what you mean by, and then you can go back to the, one of them that you remember. Preferably one of the first ones. Okay? And what you will find is that oftentimes the steamroller doesn't actually want to have a conversation. And I've experienced this more often than not. The steamroller doesn't want to have a conversation. They just want to emote. They just want to vomit on you, essentially, to use sort of a crass term there. But they just want to get it all out and then overwhelm you. And hopefully you'll just go away. So if, if you let them sort of keep going, they'll just keep going and overwhelm you. But what you need to try to do is stop them and say, hold on, hold on a second. You said something very interesting in the beginning there. Can I ask you some questions about it? And if they say yes, then you've stopped them successfully. If they say no, then you say, well, are you really, you can ask them, are you really interested in having a conversation? Do you really want to have a dialogue or do you want to just talk? That's a fair question. If they say, I don't want to have a conversation, then you can just say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go. Because Scripture says we should use our time wisely. We don't need to just stay there and be a punching bag for them. Okay? So that's how we stop the steamroller. So that person who just keeps throwing things at us, and a lot of them are probably going to be personal attacks. Or at least personal attacks on the person that we're trying to defend or something. This idea. The last one is the professor's ploy. And these are sort of common um, tactics of our opponent. So the prof professor's ploy is when we have someone that we're engaging with who we probably think is a little bit smarter than us or is in a position of, um, like if we're somewhere and they have the microphone sort of idea, where they're the one fielding questions. The professor's ploy is when you are asking questions of them and they realize that you're asking questions to make a point, to drive them to a certain point. Well, what they will do is they'll say, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to ask questions. Well, let me. Ex you must be one of those Christians who thinks everyone else who disagrees with you is wrong. Well, go ahead. I'll give you some time. Go ahead and prove to me how Christ or Christianity is the only true religion. Well, what has he done there? He's turned the tables. He's turned the tables. He's reversed the burden of proof. 
Why is that an illicit move? If we only use questions, why is that inappropriate? Because we, yeah, we haven't made a claim yet. Yeah. So this is the amazing thing about asking questions. If you just ask questions and he tries to turn the tables on you, you can say, well, you actually don't know what I believe because I haven't made any claims. Now, we, some people might say, well, that's not a good, rep- that's not a good witness to Christ or repos- rep- um, representation of defending Christ. But I think it is because it shows people, I'm not just, I'm not dumb. I'm not just out here flippantly trying to make these arguments and I don't understand what I'm doing. If we're going to go out among the wolves as sheep, then we need to be wise, we need to be clever, this sort of idea. We need to be able to compete with the wolves on their own turf. So that's the professor's ploy, steamroller, and ad hominem. And these are common, common attacks that you're going to see. The point is, and the answer to all of them, is question. Ask a question. This guy tries to make you make a statement, don't do it. Ask a question. Say, well, have I made any claims yet? And he'll go, oh, no, you haven't. He might say, well, you have beliefs. Obviously, you have beliefs. You wouldn't be using questions. He'd say, well, okay, but you just tried to turn the tables on me, and you call him out. He called you out? Go ahead and call him out. Right. Yep. So these are just, these are just some uh, common pitfalls. Um, and again, if, if you don't remember these, just come back and listen to them again. And uh, we'll get there. So I'm going to just end. Class is coming to an end, and the, the course is coming to an end. And I want to read two verses again, just to sort of finish and reiterate what we've been talking about. The one was I just referenced was Matthew 10, verse 6. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. If we are wise and gracious and kind, and genuinely interested in the world, in the lost world, in man and his state, then we will be equipped to engage with him. That's the important part. If we have a misunderstanding of trying to just defeat him or just to prove him wrong to make ourselves feel better, we're not actually being salt and light to the world. Yes, as I'll read here, salt, one of its usage is to be put into a wound as a disinfectant, and it burns. But that's not the only reason you put salt into a wound. You don't just do it to cause extra pain. So as Christians, we don't want to just argue just to cause extra pain. We don't want to argue just to use and to create extra grief in the person. We want to do it to make them better, to give them value, and to show them the value that they do have in Christ. So the last verse we will read is again from Matthew, a few chapters before. 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. As a city on a hill cannot be hidden, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Amen. That's our goal. To be salt and light to the world, to bring interest and to bring uh, conversation to the world that is fruitful and to show in, uh, in fallen man that um, we actually do care about him. So, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.